It's good to be with you again. One major difference this year, my wife is with me, Wanda. So that's a real treat. And we flew in to sunny California to, <laughs> to arrive in the rain. But um, I was reminded, Dave, that uh, you know, there's an old Jewish proverbial saying, answer not the prayer of the traveler. Because the traveler is the person who's on vacation. And what does a person on vacation want? They want good weather when the farmer might be needing rain for the crops. So uh, answer not the prayer of the traveler. I know you needed the rain, and it's good that you got a nice, steady, drenching, at least we did, rain where we were. So very good. It's good to be with my brother, Mr. Hill, Brother Roy Hill. Um, to my knowledge, we've not spoken together. We've been together, but it's been a few years. So it's nice to be with you again, and uh, good to be here with you for this time of expectation of what the Lord may have. And while you're praying, if you wouldn't mind, uh, as sort of an outflow from last year, uh, Brother Magdi had uh, invited some folks to come who came to all the meetings to my recollection and had dinner over at their house when we went one evening. And uh, I maintained a little bit of contact with her. And uh, so the Lord has opened a door for me on Monday and Wednesday to go to two different uh, jail facilities. All the paperwork's been done, clearance been approved, and I'll be able to go in these two different facilities to speak to different groups of men and share my testimony in those facilities on Monday and Wednesday. So the Lord has opened that door. We'll expect good things to happen, but would appreciate you praying for those things uh, in those meetings as well. Uh, let's turn, if we could, in our Bibles to the book of 1 Kings, chapter 16. For my part, I'd like to take up the ministry of Elisha, but tonight we're going to begin by looking at something of the life of Elijah, because one of the things that it seems as we think about Elisha, and it becomes a very important part of the history of that prophet, is that his ministry is a continuation of the ministry that Elijah began. And that's a very significant point, at least I believe it to be in the history as it is recorded for us, that the ministry of Elisha is a continuation of the ministry of Elijah. As a matter of fact, it's probably where we get the idea, or at least the uh, phrase that's sometimes used, the passing of the mantle, because there literally was a passing of the mantle to, from Elijah to Elisha. And it was more than just a figurative thing, a very critical thing in that life and ministry. So I'll begin by reading in chapter 16 and verse 28. 1 Kings chapter 16 and verse 28. So Omri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his stead. And in the thirty and eighth year of Asa, king of Judah, began Ahab, the son of Omri, to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria twenty and two years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. 
And it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, that he took to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove. And Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. In his days did Hael the Bethlehite build Jericho. He laid the foundation thereof in Abiram his firstborn and set up the gates thereof in his youngest son Segub, according to the word of the Lord which he spoke by Joshua the son of Nun. And Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth, before whom I stand, there shall not be dew nor rain these years, but according to my word. The times. One of the reasons I want us to look at Elijah is to get a sense of what was taking place in those times. Because when we see what was taking place in those times, how bad the conditions were, and then we begin to look at the ministry of Elisha and even a bit of Elijah in, uh, in uh, relation to those times, we realize that no matter how dark the times are, no matter how bleak the situation may be, no matter how corrupt the government might become, and even the rulers of the people, and sometimes those in religious authority, God is able to still raise up those to do His work and to see tremendous things happen. That's an encouragement to me. I don't know about you, but every now and then I sort of take my bearings on the landscape around us, and uh, it doesn't appear to me that things are getting better. And on whatever scale we decide to use or measure, whether it be economically or or financially, or whatever area we seem to think about, but certainly in the area of, of the world in which we live. The times are certainly, to put it mildly, challenging. And yet God is able to raise up those to accomplish His will and to see His work carried on. 62 years since Solomon and his rule in all the glory of that kingdom. Was there ever a king like Solomon? 58 years since the division of the nation into the two sections that come to be known by various terminology, sometimes just called Israel and Judah, sometimes the northern and the southern kingdom. 58 years since that kingdom division. Six kings of Israel. By the way, I sometimes say to folks, uh, it's hard for me sometimes in studying first and second kings to keep the kings straight. Which king reigned where, and whether he was Israel or whether he was Judah, and so on. Um, but one thing that you can keep fairly uh, straight in your thinking is this, that if you ever get tested on the kings as a whole, which ones were good and which ones were bad. Well, if you put all bad, you won't make a pass, you won't, you'll make a passing grade, you won't make a hundred, but you'll still make a passing grade. All the kings of Israel were bad. 
There was not one good king in that part of the kingdom known as Israel. The north began in apostasy, departure from the word of God, departure from God's truth, and they never recovered. However, in the south, Judah, there were good kings. And God used a number of those kings to see times of reviving among his people. And by the way, when it comes to revival, since there does seem to be some interest in that, even today among many folks, it helps me when I think of, of the kings as a sort of a model of biblical reviving, that revival in the book of Kings is always a recovery. It's not reinventing the wheel. It's not something new. It's getting back to things that had been departed from, that had been established in the beginning by the Lord. Revival always takes you back to that which had been gotten away from. It didn't take something new to begin or some kind of new work. It was getting back. And those kings that were used by God in the south, in Judah, to see those great periods of revival or to lead those periods of revival, it was always getting back to those things that had been either sold off or traded off or given up, things that God had established. And you'll know that as you read the kings, there became two standards to measure the kings by. When a king did that which was good, it is said of the king that he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, as did David his father. That's a statement that you'll have to ponder and weigh, because we know the story of David. He wasn't a perfect man. There hasn't been one other than the Lord Jesus who walked this earth. But in spite of David's faults and failures and outright sin, there's one area that David never sinned in. He never sinned in the area that had to do with the things of God, the house of the Lord. And David becomes the standard by which all of the good kings are measured. On the other side of the scale is Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And when a king did evil, it is said that he walked in the ways of Jeroboam and the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. So there was a standard by which the kings were measured. But when we begin to think about Ahab, what a record is his testimony that is given to us here in this book of Kings. That Ahab, he did evil in the sight of the Lord above all that were before him. And the scripture says it came to pass as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat. As if that wasn't enough. To top it off, he went and married Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians. And he served Baal and worshipped him and reared up an altar. And so on. And then imagine this statement in verse 33. Think about it for a moment. Ahab made a grove, and he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Wow. How do you top that? Not that you want to. But imagine, he did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings that were before him. 
he married Jezebel. If we were to read a little bit further, for instance, in chapter 18, you notice in verse 4, it was so that when Jezebel cut off the prophets of the Lord, that Obadiah took a hundred prophets and hid them by fifty in a cave, and so on. So part of what Jezebel did was to cut off the prophets of Jehovah, the true prophets of the Lord. In chapter 18, and verse 19, when the contest, if we can call it that, the challenge took place on Mount Carmel, they gathered the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. Must have been a big table, unless that's just a metaphor for her financing them. 850 false prophets and the prophets of the Lord cut off by Jezebel. And Jezebel is so bad that when you come to the book of Revelation, that there she is identified as that one who corrupts the people of God, seduces the people of God, and teaches false doctrine. And that name becomes identified with those who would corrupt God's people, cause them to commit fornication, and teach false doctrine. You see, in the days of Elijah, in the days of Ahab, there was a sort of a religious and political amalgamation. It wasn't unusual for kings to form political affinities and alliances with other nations around them, and often that was done by marriage. And we know that that didn't stop uh, with the days of the kings in Israel. It happened throughout Europe and other places political arrangements, but of course this was different, wasn't it? A sort of a religious syncretism, taking a little bit of the worship of the Lord, mixing it in with a whole lot of the worship of Baal, Baal, syncretizing the two of them together as if that were even possible in reality, and corrupting the people of God through that false teaching. I believe that what we find here in its incipient form in the book of Revelation, reaches its climax in that which is called Babylon. Revelation chapter 17 and 18, the amalgamation of religion and politics and government formed together to be an incredibly powerful force in that day. And so the scene was very dark. There was ruin all around them, but the Lord didn't abandon them, did He? He raised up prophets. And we know from the story, if we know the story of our Old Testament in this section of the book of Kings, that even though Elijah thought he was alone, the Lord would remind him, I have 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. He wasn't alone. And so there were others, although they were sparse and apparently scattered. He raised up a prophet who would be a witness to the reality of the true and the living God. A prophet who would be a witness to the truth of God's Word, who would stand for that truth in spite of tremendous obstacles and opposition. And how we need people today who will stand for the truth of God and who will live lives that show forth the reality 
of the true and the living God. Those, that's, that's hard to argue with, isn't it? Somebody once said, facts are stubborn things, especially when they're walking around on two legs. You know, I had an interesting experience last year. My wife, uh, not to bemoan our personal ills and whatnot, but my wife had two surgeries. And so uh, I busied myself somewhat in the care of my wife as much as I could, uh, poor unprofitable servant though I am, and, uh, and, and tried to do a few other things because, well, quite frankly, during some of the surgeries she was drugged up anyway, so, uh, you know, I had to find other things to do. So one of the things I decided to do was to paint the outside of our house. Our house is on the market for sale, and, you know, you go back and forth. Do I paint it or just let the people who move in when you sell it? You know how, how that is. And so decided, well, we're going to go ahead and give it a coat of paint. Hadn't had a coat of paint in 17 years. Really good paint, that first paint. And so um, decided to paint the outside of the house. Now, Florida, okay, and uh, that would have probably been in, was that in May, I think? That was in the back surgery. Hard to keep them all straight. And so, uh, May, Florida, well, you get the picture. Hot. I mean, it's so hot, literally, I cannot put the paintbrush down. If I put the paintbrush down, the paint dries on the brush. You know, if I take a break for five minutes. So I've got to keep painting or clean the brush out if I stop. So I'm painting away on the outside front of the house, and I notice a car pull into the driveway across the street. Two people get out. They went to knock on the door. Nobody answered. They turned. They saw my driveway. And in the driveway they came. I was sitting on the ladder in the front painting the house. We'd like to talk to you. I said, well, you're welcome to talk to me, but I've got to keep painting. You see, it's hot out here. And uh, <laughs> if I put this paintbrush down, it's going to dry. You know? And so you talk all you want, but I'm going to be painting. And I said, well, interesting times we're living in, isn't it? Yeah, very interesting, yes. Yeah. And, uh, well, I wonder what it's all going to come to. Uh, no question in my mind what it's going to come to, you know. <laughs> really? Yes. Why do you say that? Well, I know what's going to happen in the end. You do? Yes. How do you know that? And I said, well, you know, the, the Bible has a little something to say about it. It does. Well, how, you, do you read the Bible? Well, once or twice. I've kind of dabbled in there, you know. And, <laughs> and so, you know, <laughs> so I'm painting away. Well, it's, a, it's an older man and a young woman who's, I think she was 20-ish from, from England, by the way. And she had come over, and she was being groomed by the older gentleman. And so, um, well, what, why would you read the Bible? And I said, well, because, you know, uh, I tell you, if, do you really want to hear? Yes. Yeah, I would like to hear. Okay, well, because, you see, one day I started reading the Bible because I met the Lord Jesus Christ. I was sitting in a jail cell on my way to prison for the third time. And I met the Lord Jesus Christ. And He saved me and forgave me for my sins. And He changed my life. And He made me a new person in Christ. I said, There's, you know, no religion could do that. This was a relationship with the living Lord. And on and on I went. And when I finished, I mean, I went quite a while. You know? Because He said He wanted to hear. <laughs> and so... The older gentleman, when I, when I finally finished, he goes, that's incredible. He says, I've been doing this 50 years, and I have never in my life heard anything like that. 
I said, really? That's amazing. I said, you give me just a little bit of time, I can get about 50 people here who could tell you stories, true stories, just like that. The reality of a changed life. And you know, now I've dealt with those folks a lot over the years, and I haven't always handled it right. The flesh gets up in me sometimes, you know, and I want to take the Bible and hammer them over the head with it, you know. I mean, it's just the way it happens. But so this time I'm thinking, Lord, and I had just been reading. Sometimes, you know, reading's a good thing when you're reading the Scripture. And, and you read something and you thought, oh, that's interesting because I've read that a hundred times before. Never saw it. So he says, well, I'd like to read a Scripture with you. Would you mind that? I said, well, I've got to keep painting, but you go ahead and read. I said, but only if I can read one with you. Okay. He says, so he's flipping around the New Testament. He says, now, it says somewhere in here in the New Testament um, that um, there's not supposed to be any division among us. I said, look in 1 Corinthians, you know, chapter 1. Try that. Yeah, okay. So he turns there, you know. <laughs> he finds 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Oh, yeah, yes, it's right here, you know. So we shouldn't be divided, should we? We should all be in agreement, shouldn't we, on, on the things. I said, you're absolutely right. He says, well, how's that going to happen? I said, that's real easy. All you got to do is admit you're wrong, and I'm right, and we'll be in complete harmony, you see. <laughs> I said, now, I want you to turn to the book of Revelation. Okay? Turn to Revelation chapter 5. All right. Who's the lamb there? Jesus Christ. Wait a minute. Read further. And he read further. I said, so you want to tell me that in the presence of the God who sits on the throne, that those multitudes of people are falling down and worshiping the Lamb in the presence of God who will allow no other to be worshipped other than Himself, and they're worshiping the Lamb who you said is Jesus Christ? He said, I'll have to get back to you on that. I kept painting. The reality of a testimony. This is a beautiful thing. Here's this. Listen to this. Here's one of the amazing things. There's a couple of amazing facts about Elijah and Elisha. One thing I just found out today, because I was trying to figure out where the last time they're mentioned in the Old Testament. Do you know that there's only one reference, this is interesting, in First and Second Chronicles, only one reference to Elijah. Nothing about Elisha. That's, that's an interesting thing. I'm not sure quite yet how to digest that. But the other interesting fact is this. That when you realize almost half of First Kings has a little bit of something to do with Elijah or with his ministry and the kings that are connected. And then when you come to 2 Kings, almost half of 2 Kings will include something about, or you'll find Elisha at least mentioned throughout almost half of 2 Kings. Then you realize this, that these two were not prophets in the south, in Judah. God raised them up as prophets in the north to the apostate north Israel. And what's further amazing is this, that if the key to revival in the book of Kings is a recovery which is tied in 
and linked to the truths that were represented in the house of the Lord, which was at Jerusalem, you have no record of Elijah or Elisha ever visiting the house of the Lord. They were in the north. But, though they never visited the house, listen to these words in chapter 17 and verse 1 of Elijah. Elijah the Tishbite, who was of the inhabitants of Gilead, said unto Ahab, As the Lord God of Israel liveth before whom I stand. Now the language that is used there is the same language that is used of the priest who ministered to the Lord in the holy place. Did you see that? So that even though Elijah never visited that house of the Lord in Jerusalem, he stood and lived in the reality as if he were in that house, ministering like a priest, conscious of the presence of God. He might have stood before the king Ahab, but in his mind and in his thinking, it wasn't the king Ahab that he was answering to. He was standing in the presence of Jehovah. And that's the way he would face the king. So isn't it interesting at least that in that north that was so apostate and such departure from God, that the two greatest prophets that we have recorded of that period of history are found. The miracles that are recorded that they did and the ministry that they performed. What a witness that God would have even to that corrupt part of the nation and people and how they would own the truth of God. If you remember the story of what happens when Elijah is on Mount Carmel, you remember that when the prophets of Baal finish all their foolishness and all the rigmarole, you know, and he gets ready and he rebuilds the altar, not with ten stones, but with twelve, recognizing the unity of all of the people of God recognizing what God had established in that nation, even though now that nation had been split. But Elijah, when he rebuilt that altar, built it with 12 stones. And he stood upon that truth of the unity of all of God's people. And so, throughout their lives, you'll see these things. By the way, if you'd like that reference... Deuteronomy chapter 18.5 is one that tells us of the priest position. How they lived in the reality. So like Moses, Elijah had more respect for the king he couldn't see. Because that's the one he answered to. Moses endured as seeing him who is invisible. The invisible king had more influence over his life than any king that he could see on earth. And do you know if you're a believer in Christ, that's true of you? If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is invisible, who is your Lord, has more influence on you than any king on earth. Why are you here tonight? Okay, I had a little bit of rain, but hey, it's still California. You're still in SoCal. <laughs> and here you are on a Friday night 
And of course, we have one man who's come all the way from Bristol. I can understand you coming to hear him, but here's me from Sorrento, <laughs> Florida. Sorrento, as we call it. <laughs> Why are you here? You're here because you want to hear the Word of God. You're here because you want to hear God speak to you, not us men. You're here because you're interested in spiritual things. You're here because the invisible king has more influence over your life than anything visible in this world. It's powerful, isn't it? We begin to realize it. And so, Elijah, whose name meant Jehovah, the Lord is my strength. They might have had the numbers, but he had the Lord is my strength. One of the things I like to do in the Scripture in various places is sometimes take a phrase like that and just shift the emphasis around a little bit. Because where you put the emphasis can change the meaning. Jehovah is my strength. You folks have all the false gods and Baal and all the gods of the groves, but Jehovah, the Lord is my strength. Jehovah is my strength. Right now, present. He's all I need. Jehovah is my strength. That's the source of my strength. Jehovah is my strength. The one I can draw from. My resource in all things. What a name. And how he would prove it out. Proving out the reality, the authority of God's truth in his own life as a representative of the true and the living God. I want us just to think for a moment about what takes place in that familiar uh, account. Thank you, Danny. Thank you in chapter 18, because it'll sort of give us a, an entree into what occurs in the life of Elijah in the beginning of his ministry. I'm going to have to trust a little bit your understanding of the Old Testament and the history of these stories. There's 46 verses in this chapter, and I'm not going to read the whole thing for sake of time. I feel I can do that here. I've tried to get away nowadays from saying I know this is a familiar passage because unfortunately I can't say that everywhere anymore. You used to could say that. It's, it's to our shame in a sense. You can't say it everywhere anymore. But I know this place is different. So I know you folks here know the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel and how, you know, we sometimes call it a contest. It really wasn't much of a contest, was it? <laughs> I mean, they had 850, and there was just the one. But remember, Jehovah was his strength. An amazing challenge it was. Who would be the true and the living God? Let him answer by fire. The one that answers by fire. And there's a poignancy in this story when we begin to think about those prophets who began from morning until noon, crying out. Crying, voices crying into the wind, 
No answer was found. And what a sense of pathos we get from that, don't we? Even about humanity crying out to false hopes, to false religion, to false gods, to all sorts of idolatrous things, although they might not be bowing down to a statue per se. And nothing to answer them. No one to answer them. Empty voices just crying out in the wind. All the religious machinations as they cut themselves and the blood gushed out and there was no voice to answer in verse 29 nor any that regarded. And oh, the simplicity of what Elijah did when he said, come near and called them to repair the altar of the Lord that was broken down. And he took the twelve stones in verse 31 according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob unto whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be thy name. Think of it. Just stop for a moment and realize where did the very name Israel come from? The very name, by the way, that those northern tribes were now identified by. That name came by means of God's revelation wasn't a name that Jacob chose. It was the God who was the God of Revelation who revealed that name to Jacob and caused that change to take place. The God of supernatural revelation. Verse 32, with those stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, made a great trench, put the wood in order, laid the bullock in order, filled the barrels, poured it on, said, do it again a second time. Do it again a third time till the water ran around the altar and the trench was filled. And then listen to this in verse 36. It came to pass, what a coincidence, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, at the very time when that sacrifice would, would or would supposed to have been offered at the house of the Lord in Jerusalem that Elijah came near and prayed those few simple words. Hear me, O Lord, hear me, that this people may know that Thou art the Lord God and that Thou hast turned their heart back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell. What is the evidence that this is the true, true God? I'll tell you this. It wasn't just that the God who was the true God answered by fire. It's where the fire fell. Instead of falling on those people who were in rebellion against God, in apostasy and had departed from His truth and brought shame to His name, instead of the fire falling on them, the fire fell on the sacrifice. And there's the demonstration of the true and the living God, isn't it? Because God, Paul will say in the book of Romans, demonstrated His love toward us in this. That while we were yet sinners, the fire didn't fall on us. It fell on the sacrifice on God's Son, who Paul says in 2 Corinthians, was made a sin offering for us. Him who knew no sin was made a sin offering for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And there's the evidence in this world in which we live. You want evidence? I'll tell you the evidence. (laughs) 
God spared not His Son. And the fire that should have fallen on a sinful humanity who would crucify the Son of God to a cross in a place of shame outside the walls of that city. The fire in that sense didn't fall on those people that day, but it fell upon Him and consumed the sacrifice. There's the evidence of who the true and the living God is. And you would think, wouldn't you, with such a public demonstration on Mount Carmel that the nation would turn. But they didn't turn. And the leaders didn't turn. But oh, there came the blessing of rain from heaven. That was God's method with the land of Israel, wasn't it? He told them at the very outset before they entered the land, listen, you're going to go to a land that's not going to be like Egypt where you can just take your foot and dig it in the dirt and water, water your garden. <laughs> yeah. You're not going to go to a land that has that fertile crescent overflowing its banks and producing all those rich crops. You're going to go to a land that's dependent on rain from heaven. And if you don't follow my word, I'll just turn the spigot off. <laughs> I'll get your attention. <laughs> That's a sort of a paraphrase, as you might imagine. <laughs> but it was true, wasn't it? The land of Israel was dependent upon what blessing came from heaven. And there had been a drought for all those years. And now, the heavens opened. And the blessing of rain poured down. And Elisha was commissioned during a period of the long suffering of God. You remember that when Elijah was in the cave, he heard the still, small voice of God speaking to him. But while sometimes we focus on the character of that voice, that still, small, gentle voice, don't miss what the voice said. Because that still, small voice announced one of the most sweeping judgments that would fall upon the land and the kings of that time. You see, when God rises up in judgment, He doesn't lose His temper. He's not like those gods of mythology, you know, who wake up one morning and the toast is burnt, or Hera burns the toast, and they chunk a few lightning bolts down upon humanity. That's not God. It's an awesome thing when you come to the book of Revelation and you find those who are in heaven Worshiping God because of His judgments. Righteous and true are Thy judgments, O Lord. It's an amazing thing. We can't see it and even hardly fathom it now. But when God rises up to judge this world, those judgments will have been seen to be righteous and just and holy and a cause for the very worship of God, His judgments. It won't be flying off the handle. It won't be because He had a bad day. 
He speaks calmly and deliberately, but powerfully. As those judgments are announced to Elijah, and he's told to anoint, appoint Elisha in his room instead. And yet the judgments don't come right away. There's a very long period of time. It's an interval. And in that interval, we have the ministry of Elisha, who would perform more recorded miracles than even Elijah. But that's a subject that will have to wait if the Lord doesn't come tonight until in the morning. But may the Lord stir our hearts to think of the reality of what our lives can be. Never underestimate the reality of a testimony to the truth of the true and living God. And please never hear me to say that your testimony has to be anything like mine. God forbid. <laughs> Some of the most wonderful testimonies I listen to are those people like my wife who were saved at an early age. And God is able to preserve you from the wickedness of this world. and Give you a testimony that's an amazing testimony of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bless Your Word, we pray. Any part of it that was just human thinking or speculation, if possible, remove it from our minds. Don't let it stick. But may the Spirit of God speak to our hearts with the truth of God. May we see the Lord Jesus and what He is able to do with us, through us, even in these times that we live in, in the world in which we find ourselves. We give you thanks in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.